Good evening, folks. Uh, my as Christopher said, my name is Gareth Irwin. I'm part of the preaching um, group in Kirkpatrick. We're a group of people who attempt to try and explain some of God's Word and um, then watch Christoph and David as the professionals do it much better than us. The freedom I have with this passage is that the way the biblical record has it is that there's this um, run through the tabernacle and all its furnishings and then in a couple of weeks' time it all happens again. So anything that I miss out, David McCullough will sort out in a couple of weeks' time. So there's real freedom. It's great. I was chatting to my mum before I came out, and um, she was saying, oh, all right, you're doing the tabernacle in one night. I'm currently going to a course where we've done three weeks on the lampstand, which is one part of the tabernacle. And I was like, okay. So, so, so be gracious. It's, a, it's an overview. It's an overview. Um, the other thing is that one of the things about the tabernacle is it appears commonly in popular culture. And um, so that's Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, which was a film some time ago um, when I was growing up. And it's one of these things that really fascinates um, our culture and fascinates our interest, and we want to try and understand it. But part of the trouble is that it also then falls down to these kind of Bible code people who try and explain the, uh, to the absolute minimum, and consequently then miss the big picture of what God is saying about him and his people and how we should respond to him. So I suppose before we get going, we need our hat and we need our whip, just like Indiana Jones, but we also need to pray. So let's take a, take a moment and we'll ask God to help us this evening. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that it shows us um, your relationship with your people from the Garden of Eden to heaven. And Lord, we realize that we're somewhere in the middle of that. Um, but Lord, we want to receive your wisdom and your guidance um, from all those people who've experienced that relationship with you. And Lord, we pray tonight as we wrestle with these chapters um, from Exodus, Lord, I pray that your presence would be here, your Holy Spirit would be here. And just as you anointed the people who wrote this down, Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would come and re-anoint this text so that it would challenge our minds and invigorate our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, let's get going. The tabernacle was this portable shrine made up of a large lattice of acacia wood poles and linen curtains. One formed the main hall, the holy place. There were these two rooms as part of the tent. And the other formed a second, smaller room at the back of the main hall, separated by a curtain called the Holy of Holies. The tabernacle sat in this courtyard, screened off from the rest of the camp by linen curtains that were about 15 feet high. That brief overview sets us up for the following of the Exodus account, because the Exodus account wants to really explain and let us get to grips with this thing that's going on. But the important thing is to note where Exodus takes us, first of all. We start off in the Holy of Holies and then move out into the courtyard, describing the um, furniture along the way. Firstly, though Christoph has built us up a picture of where this fits into the context of what's been going on, the Israelites or the Hebrews were a group of slaves who had escaped Egypt um, and by these miraculous events that God had led them out. They'd crossed the Red Sea and they'd, they'd seen the Egyptians completely destroyed and yet they're wandering along and they aren't really a community as yet. They're this group of people and over the preceding chapters we've seen how they've been given laws and they've been given the Ten Commandments, but as yet they aren't quite together as a community. 
Well, what the point is, is that everything that has gone before, so all that law and the fact that the Ten Commandments are there, are the very heart of what God is building for himself and creating for himself in the tabernacle. Basically, the tabernacle is God's relationship with Israel Israel is cemented in the law and the Israelite response to that law. As we were reading, though, it also is God fulfilling part of his promise. In 25 verse 8, it says, have them make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell amongst them. This was more than just the Israelites being made a people. So they'd got their law, they'd got their Ten Commandments, and now they were getting a building for their worship of their God. But it was actually God fulfilling that promise and saying, not only are you a people compared to all the other peoples, but you are the people with whom I'm going to dwell. He would dwell amongst them. And so the account that Exodus gives us starts off in the, the Holy of Holies, and the thing that's in the middle of the Holy of Holies is this, the Ark of the Covenant, the thing that Indiana Jones was after. It's, a, it's quite sort of basic about the run-through. It says that it's made of acacia wood. It's covered in gold. There are these permanent poles made of wood that are then covered in gold and uh, at either side of it. And inside the Ark of the Covenant was going to be the testimony in verse 16. That's the Ten Commandments as we would understand them. And later passages tell us that as well as the Ten Commandments, inside was manna, the bread that was provided for the Israelites in the wilderness, and then um, Aaron's staff. Over the top of that, there was going to be this atonement cover or mercy seat, as um, it's traditionally translated as, that went over the ark. And finally, these two cherubim facing each other at either end of the ark. The important thing out of all of this was in verse 22. It says, then above the cover between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the testimony, I will meet with you and give you all my commands. Wow. Do you get it? Suddenly, we've had this transformational moment. The last time God met with his people like this was in the Garden of Eden, and that's where sin cantered it, and this relationship that God was supposed to have with humanity was destroyed forever. But yet, suddenly, in this moment, God is fulfilling his promise and saying that I will dwell in the very heart of your community in this little space that's just between those two angels as they overlook the Ark of the Covenant. Before we get bogged down in the difficult task of trying to unpack all the symbolism of the various furniture um, and so on in the, in the tabernacle, we, we shouldn't miss the importance of what has just been said. God will meet with his people in this tent. The Ark of the Covenant was the only item. In the Holy of Holies, there was no light. The presence of God was all that was needed to keep, um, keep light there and keep um, it the way it should be. And with the Ark of the Covenant there, somebody else went into it only once a year on the Day of Atonement. By way of explanation, the atonement cover, or this mercy seat as it was described, is called a copperet, copperet. And um, some of you who know your Hebrew haha, um, will think about the Day of Atonement and this idea of Yom Kippur, and automatically will think about this is what the mercy seat was used for once a year, the high priest was able to enter the Holy of Holies and then carry out a sacrifice and sprinkle some blood over this area. Interestingly, the Day of Atonement is on the 26th of September this year, and again, people in uh, synagogues and so on throughout the world will be reenacting that event. But as Christoph was highlighting earlier, if we look closely at this, this system has grace at the very heart of it. 
because a holy God was allowing a high priest once a year to come in, and between the law and between the presence of God to sprinkle some blood for atonement. It's an interesting one, isn't it? And it's something we're going to touch on later on. But the fact is that at the very heart of this old system that is um, sort of New Testament Christians we deride, there was grace evident. There was the law in the Ark of the Covenant. There was God between the cherubim. And there was this blood that was allowing man to enter in the presence of God. The sacrificial blood allows humans to enter the territory of God and his law. We continue on on our whistle stop tour, and we find that there's a curtain that divides the Holy of Holies from the holy place. And um, this curtain was of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and finely twisted white linen. There were details of cherubim on the curtain. And um, there's a, this is where there's a danger that you can get into the Bible code realms and wonder, where the, was there symbolism in those colors? So some people um, way back said blue maybe represented heaven, purple for royalty, scarlet for blood, and white for purity. But we don't know. All we know is that it was unbelievably ornate, and there were cherubim and this, this amazing curtain. The curtain provided the door to the Holy of Holies. And as we've looked already, Hebrews points to the code of what this is. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, open for us through the curtain that is his body, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. The point is that Hebrews gives us the code. It points out that Jesus is that curtain for us as New Testament Christians so that we can enter that holy place and meet with God. It's a curtain, though, that we know well, because you'll all know the account in Mark's gospel when on Jesus' death, the curtain in the temple was ripped in two from top to bottom. This was a supernatural feat, firstly because it travels from top to bottom. So the point is that God is ripping this curtain. It's not two people at the bottom giving it a good tug. The fact is that God, whenever Jesus dies, is opening this way to, for us. The other thing is that it was supposed to be about six inches thick, so it'd be some fun trying to rip this curtain um, with two sort of two people giving it a good tug at the bottom. The Bible shows us that um, and starts to unpack what the tabernacle means to us today. We go on and in the holy place, this is the, the area outside um, the holy of holies and with the curtain dividing it off. And in the holy place, there's a few items of furniture again. What we have is the lampstand. Um, this was made out of gold with seven branches looking like almond flowers, buds, and blossoms. And the holy place, unlike the holy of holies, was lit with this lampstand. And the tending of the lampstand was one of the things that the priests had to do. It was their major priority to ensure that the light was always burning. One of the things you'll find is, just as I was saying about my mum going to this course, where it was really unpacked and unpacked. There's so many tangents or, or wonderful things that you could unpack. And one of the verses just about the lampstand in verse 20 is, command the Israelites to bring you clear oil of pressed olives for the lights so that the lamps may be kept burning. When I was reading that, I just thought that's a sentence that I would love to unpack for half an hour, but then would be here the next week, so it wouldn't be good. Um, but it's just the richness of the imagery and the furniture and trying to understand what this means to us is, is thrilling. 
One of the other elements beyond the lampstand was this bread of presents and this table of presents. There were 12 loaves, um, six in two piles, and it was placed in the holy place. The idea was, in comparison with the Israelites to a lot of other religions around there, and they, other religions, you had to bring stuff to feed your God. And it was this idea that the God was, had to be supported and blessed and nourished by his people. And um, the Israelites were clear, and God was clear, that the point of the bread in the holy place was not that he needed fed, but that actually he was feeding his people. And so there was always bread on the table because God was providing for his people. We go on, and also in the holy place is the altar of incense. It's very interesting as you read through the text, it's very hard to recreate these things. There's enough details so that we have an idea of what's going on, but not enough that we could actually reconstruct it. And so in this, we know again that this is made out of acacia wood, and it's covered in gold with horns and four corners, and it was placed in front of the curtain leading into the Holy of Holies. Again, it was the priest's job morning and evening to burn fragrance on this altar, so that morning and evening there would be these, this offering of incense before God. It's not very hard to understand a lot of other passages in the Bible. Incense represents the prayers of God's people, and it's a fantastic picture of these priests going in morning and evening, and at the very, in front of the very curtain that was their way into God and the Holy of Holies, they were offering these prayers of intercession. It showed us that the prayers drifting up to God were showing that, that our access to God, our access to the presence of God was through this. The account then travels out um, from the holy place into the tabernacle, which is in the courtyard. And if you can see there, the sort of tent was right at the far end, and then there was this gate that you could get into, but there was a whole sort of segment of um, the camp that was set aside for God as a holy place. The tone of the account changes. As I've said, we originally start from the Holy of Holies and the Ark of the Covenant and work our way out. Whenever Exodus is then talking about the courtyard and so on, suddenly the tone changes because it's actually as if we're outside and we're coming in towards God. And so when we travel on our way from the gates um, in towards the temple, the first thing we, or in towards the tabernacle, the first thing we come to is the altar of sacrifice. Again, it's made of acacia wood, um, because it's a wood that's easily found in the desert. But at this stage, instead of being covered in gold, which was for all the um, furniture and so on in the tabernacle, this is now covered in bronze. Uh, we have the horns on the four corners, and um, this is where all the sacrifices for the sin offerings happened. And you can understand then why it's at the gate as you come into the tabernacle. As you come in out from the camp of the Israelites, the first thing you come to is the sin offering um, altar. And that's um, the symbol because before you could go any further, you had to make um, restitution for the sins that you'd committed. When we go on further, we see this large bowl or laver where the priests were to wash. And on the day that the priests were consecrated, um, they would have offered the sacrifice, and then they walked towards this lather and had to wash their hands and their feet. The people who were responsible for all this were the high priests. And I'm kind of loath to use this, but if it works, aha, uh -huh. does it? Yeah, kind of. Can you see my laser pointer? 
vaguely? No. Um, again, there's a lot of symbolism in what's going on with the high priest. Um, the high priest, of course, we know is a type of Jesus, but the importance is not in the person, as in who was doing it, so it was Aaron and all his children, but the important thing is the garments. And again, one of the things that the Old Testament's big on is that the garments represent what you would hope the institution to be rather than focusing on the person. Again, there's loads of detail in this that we could unpack and be here for a fortnight. Um, but the thing is that the point of the clothes is to represent everything that the priest ought to be, but yet we know that the need for the altar the sacrifice on the altar, altar and the fact that the priests need to wash, whereas that the priests were never going to make up, make the standard that God required for them to serve him properly. What they wore was this tunic of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet, the same colors that were in the curtain of the Holy of Holies. They wore these, um, this thing called the ephod, the belt, the breastplate, these cords and the robes. And then on top of it, they had a turban, which had this... Um, thing engraved with holy to the Lord. The breastplate contained the urim and the thummim. These were these stones that uh, were used in the Old Testament to try and get wisdom from God whenever the Israelites needed to make a decision. And the point was that the high priest didn't make the decisions, but they were an organ for God's revelation as an earthly source of wisdom and direction of God. The high priest also walked into the Holy of Holies, as we said, once a year with the names of the tribes of Israel engraved in two places on them. The names were engraved on the ephod, um, and also then they were engraved on the, um, the chains over the top of, uh, that sort of joined the ephods together. Again, this is one of these things you would just love to unpack. The fact is that on the Day of Atonement, the high priest walked in with the names of the children of Israel on his heart, and quite literally the weight of the people of Israel on his shoulders as he was doing this sacrifice before God. What a picture and what a challenge. He was not, he didn't enter as himself, but as the representative of the people. And again, as New Testament Christians, we know that later on there's this notion in Peter of the priesthood of all believers. And what an image and a challenge for us as we try and unpack how we live and approach God with the people, God's people engraved over our hearts and carrying the weight of the people on our shoulders. Their job was to offer the sacrifice and offer the prayer um, daily for the people, but also then to go in once a year on the Day of Atonement. That has been a high-speed run through the tabernacle and some of the imagery. But as I said at the start, we don't want to get bogged down in the detail of every, every simple thing and trying to explain it um, to the uttermost, but what it is, is saying, if we were to meet people who traveled from the future, so in 200 years' time, if people were looking at how we did church this evening, what are the principles and what would we understand about us as a community of God's people that they would learn and, um, and hopefully guide them? And in the same way, whenever we look back thousands of years to how the God's people were walking around the wilderness with this tabernacle, what is it that shows us about God? What does this show us about God's character and how he wants to relate to his people? Let me suggest a few things. The first thing is that sin matters to God. You can't help in that overview or if, like me, you've spent time really trying to understand it, 
there's, there's so much complexity. We've got the complexity of the building, the complexity of the utensils that have to be used at various stages. There's the different altars that have to be used on different days. There's the ceremony. There's what the priest is wearing and how his, um, his clothes were have to be made in a certain way and so on. This was not thought up overnight. This was all set up because sin was something that could not be brushed onto the carpet. What the tabernacle was, was a system for a holy and perfect God who needed to create a way that he could get close to his chosen people without compromising himself or compromising his people. It wasn't to be treated lightly. And the thing that I look as when I look at that and see that sin matters to God is I wonder about us. And I wonder about how the church today deals with sin. Do we deal with it lightly or do we try and explain it away? If there's a sermon we don't like the tone of, we try and argue it away and say, well, that doesn't really apply to me. Or, you know, that was for the young people in the church or something like that. But actually, the point is that sin matters to God and this system was created so that God in some way would be able to relate to his people, the Israelites. It was a major thing in the life of the Israelites. If you can see, if we look at that, what I've shown you is the height of the, ta- the curtain around the tabernacle and then the person who is walking around it. The point was that the people weren't able to see what was going on and um, they were separated from what God was doing to try and restore their relationship with them. A holy God wasn't allowing people in. But yet in that, the tabernacle sat in the center of the camp of the Israelites. They would know exactly what was going on. And imagine if you were at a camp on one side and you had to chat to your mate who was in a camp on the other side. You had to go and you would have to walk around the tabernacle. The, the uh, scent or fragrance from the um, prayers and incense that were being offered would be wafting continually around the camp. The burnt offerings and the smell from the burnt offerings would be there as a constant reminder of the fact that this was ongoing to try and restore the relationship of God's people with him. You didn't know what was going on exactly inside because you couldn't see over the white linen fence, but you knew that this had been instituted to restore your relationship with God. I look at that and go, the tabernacle was at the heart of everything that the Israelites did. Whenever they moved camp, it was the last thing that came down and it was the very first thing that came up. I look at that and go and ask myself, what is the place of God in my life and the fact that I need my relationship with him restored? Jews used to wander around with phylacteries, which was bits of scripture tied onto their head and tied onto their wrist. We today wear um, fish badges or crosses or put sort of so many fishes on the back of our car that we look like a mobile aquarium, all in an effort to try and show our relationship with God. But yet, is there something where that has become almost too familiar? I wonder, and the biblical record tells us that actually the Israelites, despite having the very presence of God in the center of this, and despite having this reminder, eventually wander. And um, the thing that that points me to is that we need to be constantly reminded of the fact that sin matters to God, but the fact that we need to we need his help and his grace to be restored. Beyond sin mattering to God, the other challenge is that worship of God 
is for God. This is a picture. If you Google images and you type in church with comfy seats, this is what comes up. But the point is that actually this worship of God was not for our enjoyment or our comfort. I look at this and think how we would have set up this experience. It's all wrong, isn't it? Because the tabernacle has these white sheets around it. And the point is we would want to put windows in that because we would like, you know, outsiders to have a look in to see what's going on. Only one person ever went into the Holy of Holies once a year. That's not a good way to get a crowd. We would want video cameras in there to see exactly what's going on. The fact that there was no light, that would be a bit poor. We'd need to, you know, get the best floodlights on it to ensure that we could see what was going on in the Holy of Holies. We'd want a bit of music, wouldn't we? Because actually it's a bit dull, this sacrifice thing, and you know, the crack of the fat being burnt on the altar, it's a bit off-putting, so we'd like a bit of music and a bit of, you know, a bit of singing, and a bit more ceremony. What's this all about, you know, once a year, this only happening? Like, to get a good crowd, we need this happening at least once a week. The interesting thing is that if we were choosing a church to go to in East Belfast next week, and one was set up like the tabernacle, none of us would go there, probably, because it wouldn't, it wouldn't satisfy our needs. The interesting thing about the tabernacle and what God expects in his worship is we, it tells us we should not do it lightly. We should go in like the priests, having offered a sacrifice for their sin and having made ourselves clean. It's serious. In the Old Testament, if the priest did this lightly, the threat was of death. I'm not saying that that's quite going to happen next Sunday, but it's the same God who's um, being worshipped in the same way. And whilst we come freely as New Testament Christians, we should not come casually. The important thing here is that it's about our attitude as we approach God to worship Him. And the really interesting thing is that that then changes our perspective about all those questions that um, irritate us in church. Think about those debates over whether we should have drums or organs, the sermons being too long, the repetitive songs, the children running around um, at the end of the service. Whenever we realize that worship is for God, that changes how we view all those other questions. I'm not saying that none of those are unimportant, but I'm saying that whenever we understand that the worship of God is for Him, that changes our perspective and frees us up. The other thing I think when I'm looking at the, the stuff in the tabernacle is that it points us to Jesus, and Christoph highlighted it already. What I would love you to do, the promise is that whilst I have muddled through this, you're going to promise me that you're going to go home and read Hebrews, okay, from beginning to end, because it's the key that unpacks everything that's going on in the Old Testament about the tabernacle and stuff. I want to read um, from chapter 9 in Hebrews, because it goes like this. Now, the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. You'll know all this because I've just gone through it, okay? So, a tabernacle was set up in its first room were the lampstand, the table, and the consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered ark of the covenant. This ark contained the gold jar of manna, iron staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss these things in detail now. You see, the writer of the Hebrews was ready for this sermon, okay? 
we have to move on. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry out their ministry, but only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. Hebrew, the writer of the Hebrews explains what the problem with this is. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still standing. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They were only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. And then, when Christ came, as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not a part of his creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that leave to death so that we may serve the living God? To spell it out one more time, verse 15 in chapter 9 of Hebrews, it says, For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. It spells it out in Hebrews that actually all of this is about Jesus, and Jesus is better. And why is he better? Because actually he does it in the much better tabernacle, which is in heaven, the permanent unending tabernacle. He does it because the blood of Jesus is much better than all these animals that were sacrificed in the Old Testament. And actually he does it better because instead of having to continually sacrifice and sacrifice, Jesus Christ has done it once and for all. Why I don't get excited about looking at each of the elements in the tabernacle is because actually each of them point to Christ and reinforce it. The tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant, there is law, there is God, and there's blood in between. Doesn't that remind us of Jesus? When we look at the curtain, we've already said that Hebrews says that the way is made open, that we can get into the Holy of Holies because the curtain is ripped in two. That reminds us of Jesus. The lampstand is the light of the world. The bread is the bread of life. The altar of incense, the laver, and the altar of sacrifice point to Jesus' sacrifice, making us clean by his blood shed, by washing us by through his spirit, and by him interceding on our behalf. The point of the tabernacle is that it points to Jesus as our sacrifice with him. But more than that, God moves near. Whenever we sort of see the tabernacle and see God, if you remember the first verse was about God fulfilling his promise to the Israelites and saying that he was going to dwell with them. Whenever we start John's account in the New Testament, you'll all remember that John 1.1 is, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But in verse 14 in John 1, there's this fantastic verse when it says, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. 
we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Do you know what's amazing? Is that in verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. That dwelling literally is tabernacled. So Jesus Christ came and tabernacles amongst us, quite literally pitching his tent in our back garden. The thing is that, as we'd said, the point of how our relationship with God is supposed to be is we were supposed to walk with God in the garden in the cool of the day, just like Adam and Eve did. We were supposed to be able to chat with him, and then sin enters the garden, and that relationship is destroyed. The thing was that whenever Adam and Eve were evicted from the garden, there was an angel standing with a flaming sword making sure that they couldn't get back in because that relationship with God was destroyed. How does God look in the rest of the Old Testament? It's pretty ferocious. Job saw him as a whirlwind or a tornado, and we've seen the power of how a tornado can destroy lives and property in the United States just this week. Abraham saw God as a smoking furnace that moved over the altar. Moses saw him as a pillar of fire, and then in the tabernacle he's seen as this Shekinah glory with the threat of death to go in and be in his presence. But yet now in John 1, God is tabernacling or dwelling amongst us. And how does he choose to come? It's not as a pillar of fire, it's not as a smoking furnace, but it's as a baby, the most intimate and familiar form of human experience. It's amazing, you can get really excited about this because Moses was, Moses was here as the tabernacle was being set up. And um, what it is, is Moses sort of begged with God that he would be able to see him. And the thing that Moses was given was an opportunity to see the hindquarters of God. I have no idea what that means. But whenever he did that, he was so glowing as a consequence that he had to have a veil over his face um, because he was dazzling the rest of the Israelites. Folks, if Moses was here, he would be going, do you see it? This is amazing. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 13 says this, We are not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to keep the Israelites from gazing at it while the radiance was fading away. But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Verse 18, and we who with all unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. As I said, the tabernacle and the new tabernacle through Jesus marks the point of God moving into our neighborhood and moving close to us. The question, of course, is that if God is drawing near to us, will we draw near to him? And the tabernacle points us to some of the stuff that that involves. Whenever we're drawing near to him, Tim Keller has a phrase about what we need to do, and it's basically all you need to come to Jesus is nothing. But a lot of people don't have that because we bring a lot of baggage and a lot of stuff to try and get right with God, not realizing that Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient. If we make a commitment to draw near to God, there are three things that we will have to do, and the tabernacle draws it to us. In verse tw or chapter 25, verse two to three, there's the cost of building the tabernacle. 
when Christoph was reading it, did you see all the stuff that had to be brought? There were these jewels, there was gold, there was silver, there was bronze that the people had to sacrifice. There was the, there's going to be cost if we're going to draw near to God. And the question is, of course, what about the cost for Jesus or the cost of the Israelites in those days? Are we willing to sacrifice more time um, to actually make our commitment to Jesus real? There are some other things as well. There's the obedience. Whenever the Israelites were, beating, or were building the tabernacle in chapter 25, verse 9, they had to do exactly as shown. There was no wriggle room. If we're going to draw near to God, then we have to obey him. And um, not only do we have to count the cost, but we have to realize that there's stuff that we need to do to follow his commands. But interestingly, in the tabernacle, whenever it was being built, in verse 2, the people who were to bring the stuff were those with willing hearts. It says the offerings from the people were to be received from those whose hearts prompted them. The point was that actually you weren't just, every Israelite didn't have to commit to the tabernacle. It was a question of God prompting them in their hearts and lives. And so as we're coming to the end, the point of the tabernacle through Jesus is, is about God and the fact that sin matters to him. It's about God and his worship. It's about God sending his son as the sacrifice that completes all this, and it's about God drawing near. But we have a choice to make what our response to that is. Is it going to be a lukewarm response, or is it going to be a response where we, we make something of it? A lukewarm response is not rational. If God is who he says he is through the tabernacle, and if God's son Jesus is who the, the author of the Hebrews is saying he is, then the response is either to flee, hate, or worship him. And the, the whole thrust of this is that the, the choice for us tonight is to worship him. John Wesley, who was the brother of Charles Wesley, the author of all the hymns, John Wesley was the founder of Methodism, Charles Wesley was the hymn writer, and they were brothers. That was an overachieving family. Um, but John Wesley, on his deathbed, said, the best of all is God with us. The point, as I was saying, is that sin matters to God, that there's a sacrificial system and God's worship is the way he wants it. There's Jesus as the completing sacrifice of all this. But actually, the exciting thing is that God is moving towards us. Are we going to move towards him? The best of all is God with us. John Wesley died with these words on his lips. The challenge for us this evening as we leave is to have them engraved like the high priest with the names of the people, tribes of Israel, have these words engraved on our hearts. Let's pray.